This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. To start off the show, I'm joined on the line by Kendrick Wynn, who's founder and CEO of Republic. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here on Business Radio. All right. So I'm going to start out by pointing our listeners to to your website just so they've got it. It's Republic. And the key thing is that the top-level domain is .co. So no M on there. Republic.co. All right. Uh, Ken, give us the elevator pitch for Republic. Well, we're an investment platform that allows everyone, not just millionaires, uh, everyday people, irrespective of your income or, or net worth, to actually invest in private companies, may it be crypto or equity. It's a relatively new thing. It's only been legal for a little bit less than two years. All right. Well, I want to I want to circle back on the crypto piece, but let's take the vanilla version first. So if I go to your website, which I did this afternoon, give me an example of a company that I might find there and and what they hope to get by joining the Republic platform. Yep. So right there on the on the homepage is a company called Rumi, R O O M I, and Rumi has been venture backed by noted VC firms. It recently closed a Series A round, and now it offers up to a million dollars worth of investment open to anyone. So people who can who want to invest can invest as little as fifty dollars or a hundred dollars alongside with noted VCs. Again, a very unique, novel thing. All right. So if I were interested in learning about the company, I would just click through on that roomy link and there would be, I'm presuming, a profile page, some information that's put together by the company itself. Is that right? Correct. They put information about business traction, about their past financing record, and then to invest. It takes all about 60 seconds to go through and make an investment using your debit card or credit card or even Bitcoin. All right. But Ken, so I, I'm no lawyer, but although I, I think you are actually, so I'm sure you're in a great position to answer this question. My recollection is that the United States SEC basically outlawed this kind of investing in 1949, something like that. Um, give us a little bit of the history of the legality. How can this be legal? And give us a little bit of the history. Yep. So back in before, you know, the Great Depression, you know, which is the wild, wild west, where anyone could invest. And so we obviously went through a very tough time 80 years ago. The SEC at the time decided like, hey, this is only suitable for wealthy people. And the SEC equated wealth with sophistication. If you're wealthy, you can tolerate the risk of loss by investing in private companies. Fast forward, and we took us to, you know, the late 90s into the 2000 and the early, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, when it became very clear that if you could access private investment opportunities, you have a chance to realize 
significant outsized return. But that kind of wealth creation was only available to millionaires. So there was a lot of lobbying effort and the parent company of ours, Angelis, uh, along with other industry participants, lobby and change the viewpoint through law and at the SEC level. And now, through platforms like Republic, and it's a stringent process, but private companies that meet our requirements can now raise from private investor up to a million dollars a year. Okay, so maybe just say, just reiterate two words or so on the on what are the constraints and the rules that the government has set for how much capital, who can contribute, how much they can contribute, that sort of thing. Yep. So in short, anyone, <clears throat> even students with no income, would be able to invest at least $2,000 a year. Anyone can invest. But no one can invest more than 10% of their income or net worth, not even Bill Gates, essentially saying that it's okay to tolerate a small amount of investment in high-risk uh, private uh, angel investment opportunities. And, and for- go- Sorry, Ken, go ahead. Yeah, and for the company, it has to be a U.S. Uh, company or corporation, uh, and, and they need to file an SEC filing, prepare some accounting work, and make public financial disclosure. And this is all part of of legislation that was cleverly named, as I recall, the Jobs Act. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. How yeah. could anyone vote against the Jobs Act? Exactly. Right? Yeah, it is a it you know it's it's a very nice thing. I'm very happy about it. And just one last parameter. So the minimum amount, of course, I doubt is regulated by the SEC, but is probably a, as a practical matter, the platforms that provide the service have some minimums. What did you say the minimum was? You know, on our platform, some deals offer the minimum as low as ten dollars. Yeah, and we productize it to make that possible. Yeah. All right. So I I love this stuff and and I think it's super interesting. I I myself have made several investments uh, via equity crowdfunding. And what I tell my students because I teach entrepreneurship is before you become an angel investor where you have to get used to the idea of losing fifty thousand uh, dollars, which tends to be a really bad day when that happens, um, you can get your feet wet uh, practicing losing fifty dollars. So maybe you can say a little bit about who these investors are. Maybe a little bit about the profile of the typical Republic uh, equity crowdfunding investor. You know, for in the long in the long run, our vision is to have some fifty percent of the U.S. population participating. But even though we're only eighteen months since launch, our user base does very much represent the entire landscape of you know American demographics. We have millennials on the two coasts. We have you know women professionals on Wall Street, and we have. Farmers in you know, Alaska, we have retired dentists and lawyers of all background and heritage. And because we make the process so easy, not just from the technical standpoint, but from dollar amount, it is truly open and accessible to people of any income bracket. Uh, so, um, you know, as much as I would like to say that there's an, you know, a, a, a core user base that fit one demographic, the reality is from the get-go, it's been truly for everyone. Yeah, that's awesome. Who could who could be opposed to this? It's a really great thing. Um, so that's on the supply side of the platform. This is a 
two-sided market. It's a marketplace. And on the supply, the capital supply side, you have, as you've described it, this this really cross-section of, of America. And uh, what about on the, on the uh, demand side? So, so uh, tell us a little bit about you could tell us a little bit about uh, maybe which companies seem to be most successful in your short history, 18 months or so, in making this work. The companies that are most successful are those that are consumer-facing. So it's easy for people to understand. They spend a few minutes on our platform. They look at these awesome images and that they get the business model. But the single most important metric, the, the one element uh, that, that's, that's true for every single successful campaign is that the founders got to have a compelling story and bandwidth and readiness to tell that story. We cannot do it for them and we cannot pick a campaign that doesn't have a relatable story. So mission driven and bandwidth on the founders and to to get the message out there um, really is much of the recipe. Yeah. So what advice? So so that's a nice screen. I, I get why it would be useful for it to be consumer facing because your investors are themselves consumers so can perhaps better understand and I certainly understand the notion of, of, of founder enthusiasm and willingness to invest. Um, what does it take? I mean, I, I suspect quite a few of our listeners are very intrigued by this idea uh, as business owners themselves. What does it really take to make this happen? Maybe walk us through the process for our listeners who are envisioning themselves possibly taking advantage of this, this platform. Of course, uh, we 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 look at the pitch deck, which is you know the baseline level that we ask. Meaning, if you don't already have a pitch deck, don't think about crowdfunding just yet. Yeah. So if there's a pitch deck, we go through you know our screening process, look at fundamentals, and once we make the decision that this is suitable for Republic and we're likely going to meet a funding expectation, then we walk them through a process that's been largely automated, how to fill out a lengthy SEC form, but it's been simplified. And then we have vendors and lawyers, accountants who can help to convert financials into GAP, who can conduct securities review. But you know what? It sounds scary, but all in, the total cost for a company to do this can be as low as $3,000. So it's much lower than what people, what founders may assume to conduct an SEC regulated uh, offering. Yeah. So just let me circle back on one bit of jargon. I think we all know what a pitch deck is, but but that's just a fancy name for what today has become basically the de facto business plan. So a dozen slides in PowerPoint typically that articulates the problem and, and your solution and something about the team and the plan. So that's the first step is they prepare a pitch deck and then that gets vetted by experts, by manually, by you guys, by your staff. Is that correct? Correct. Today we have reviewed, you know, nearly a thousand pitch decks uh, and we have a partner that conduct a preliminary review. Then every single one that has gone on the platform has undergone phone interview, sometimes in-person interview, uh, additional diligence by our team. Okay. So there's good news and bad news there. On the, on the investor side, what that means is that the deals have been validated and vetted to a certain extent. But on the fundraising side... It means that, you know, this is still like 
uh, gain into the Wharton School, right? It's like a 5% uh, success rate in terms of uh, uh, the chances of you get listed on the platform. Did I get the number roughly right? Uh, correct. Uh, Our acceptance rate today is less than 10%. Yeah. And not all companies are, are suitable for crowdfunding. So we want to make sure that we protect investors' interests as well. So, Ken, I want to ask a, a slightly technical question, which is about the, the way the investment is actually structured. So I have done I've participated in several of these. And uh, the, the, the promise I always thought from the from the company standpoint was that you would aggregate all of these small investors into a single investing entity that would then give me only a single entry on my cap table in terms of the the the, the documents that represent who my investors are, um, but but in in reality it didn't happen that way. And and I wonder if you can bring us up to speed on is that a regulatory hurdle? Is that a, a technology hurdle? Uh, where are we in terms of the actual mechanism by which all of these individual investors, of which there might be hundreds, actually get represented on the in the documents for of the of the receiving company? Absolutely. Uh, what you pointed out is a regulatory uh, constraint. SEC rules specifically do not allow for the syndicated or special purpose vehicle structure to pull investors into a single entity. So that's okay for private accredited millionaire investors to do, but it's not okay for crowdfunding platforms or crowdfunding offering to, to do. Instead, we came up with a derivative of what is a convertible note or known as the save, meaning all of these small or large investors each are actually investing or transacting directly with the company, each holding a note. So think of it this way. Assuming you go out there as an individual and you borrow money, $100 each from 1,000 people, right? So all of a sudden you have 1,000 lenders uh, and they're not your shareholders or they are uh, that there's a piece of paper that say that when X and Y Z event happen, you owe them money. In this case, certain conditions happen and you owe them shares or distribution. So it's manageable because we have built a product and we have transfer agent record keeping to make it easy for the company. And from the investor perspective, it's as it's much easier than opening and owning a Fidelity account. It's almost as easy as you're logging on to your Facebook account uh, and seeing your phone number if you click on the right tab. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly get that on the investor side, that it's easy. I'm just thinking about what kind of nightmare it creates on the company side. So maybe walk me through this. And, and I actually don't think the safe structure is actually all that. I mean, it's sort of an arcane detail, I think. So let's just assume that the investor is actually making you know, is essentially entering into an agreement with the company, but there might be hundreds of these investors. So my concern is when there is some event that requires a transaction approval, uh, coordination with those few hundred investors, how does that actually happen? Do you guys do that or does the company have to worry about that? 
Yes. So uh, it's a combination, meaning on our end, because Republic, after a while, also becomes an investor in the company. So we're in the same position as all of the other investors who have that interest. We keep books and records, a second copy, alongside with the company. Let's say there's an acquisition that happens. Mm -hmm. And so we would reach out, we'll make sure that the company has that list of a 1,000 or 100 investors, and then they just go through the exact same process as to how they would convert or pay out a seat an angel investors so if an angel investor is now going to get you know a, a payout or conversion into one dollar per share then very much the same way and the process of determining which investors get which share that's where we leverage the Republic uh, technical product to make that process possible mm-hmm. uh, and including distribution and payment mm-hmm Okay, and is there any promise in the near future that the SEC will allow special purpose vehicles? Oh, there are several pieces of legislation moving uh, through Congress right now. SPV has been raised. I think that's lower on the priority list, Mm -hmm. but very well may very well be uh, the reality because, in my opinion, there isn't true, there isn't a sound social policy to prevent or to prohibit SPV for crowdfunding. It just happens to be a technical uh, reality for now. Yeah. So yes, we do expect that yeah. to change at one point. That would be a nice nice thing. Uh, Ken, circling back to the these vetted companies that you've listed on your site, can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of the the average uh, capital raised and this and the success rate for these companies that have been on your platform? Yes, today we have uh, launched uh, over 40 campaigns, and I would say the average raise to date uh, is, you know, north of $100,000. Mm-hmm. And we see that amount, you know, uh, getting higher and higher as more people know about crowdfunding and participate. And $100,000, that's a lot of money and very well adequate to start most forms of company. That said, if you're looking to launch a biotech or, or um, you know, an, uh, some, some tech-heavy, some hardware-heavy product, uh, $100,000 may not be enough, but for 90% of the type of businesses out there, that should be an adequate amount to kickstart your operation. Yeah. Um, Ken, do you think there is a, actually, let me just back up and say, I, I won't name competitors, but I, but I will point out that there have been some very successful companies that have gotten started on equity crowdfunding. Probably the most successful is Zenefits, and who, who started out as on an equity crowdfunding campaign. And I wonder if you can comment on the extent to which a concern about a negative stigma from subsequent in, in institutional investors is a reality or not. Is there any negative stigma from having, or in fact, is it viewed as a positive to have gone through an equity crowdfunding campaign if you do have bigger aspirations to raise institutional capital? Yes, and uh, I think anything new, there's always a bit of resistance from, uh, you know, from from uh, the the mainstream or the or the kind of like the old guard, uh, which is now the VC, um, uh, you know, partners and firms. That said, with time, anything that's good is going to naturally get wide adoption. Of course, in year one, we got a lot of misconception, misunderstanding from VC from from Android investor, but that has quickly changed. 
I only need to point to one example to show that uh, that the VC the, the VC ecosystem of venture firms have warmed up to it, and that's Rumi, the deal that I just highlighted. Mm. They just closed eleven uh, million dollars. The only reason why they're doing another campaign because there's no better way to engage the users and turn them into brand ambassador right. than getting someone to be an investor. So we will see many more of those examples and I think similar to Angelus syndicate products, uh, crowdfunding has already seen uh, positive reception across the board. Yeah. Ken, you know, you mentioned a, a few minutes ago that you had a parent company and that takes me to my next question, which is the origin story. So maybe tell us a little bit about your background, what you were doing before and, and where this idea came from. I, uh, before this, we I was a general counsel and venture hacker for a startup platform called AngelList, uh, Angel.co. So you mentioned earlier about Zenefit, uh, Carl, but Uber actually uh, is uh, probably even a more well-known example of a company that fundraised the first round on a crowdfunding platform, and Uber raised the first round on AngelList or through AngelList. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that model, but though, but Ken, let me interrupt you. What, that wasn't under the Jobs Act. That 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 was accredited investors, correct? Correct. correct. Okay. Yeah. That was strictly accredited back when I think 2011, right. Right. 2012. Um, now, AngelList was launched under the old rules, which is that allowed for millionaires to invest, and they launched this platform and brought people outside of the venture ecosystem into startup investing. And I was really drawn by that democratized investing, you know, mission. Uh, Now, over time, though, uh, AngelList took on more and more institutional investors and very 98% of the U.S. population weren't and aren't millionaires and couldn't participate. So when the Jobs Act uh, was passed, Title III, came into full implementation, uh, I got AngelList permission to spin out Republic and provide startup opportunities to uh, to everyday uh, people, accredited and unaccredited. Okay. Well, that's a great story, Ken. And this is fascinating and I think quite intriguing and useful for our audience. I, I want to turn to a, a complicated question. And unfortunately, we only have a couple minutes uh, to go into it. But I'm very interested in initial coin offerings or ICOs. And I wonder if you can explain in layman terms what an ICO is all about and how it relates to crowdfunding. So a an ICO, which stands for initial coin offering, in the simplest term, it's just a different way for tech startups, for tech projects to fundraise. But instead of instead of offering a stake in their company, they basically pre-selling products. What are these products? Future virtual currency, right? So these virtual currency may not have even been minted yet. They're simply pre-selling Kickstarter style. So in short, it's just an alternative way for tech projects to to do financing. All right, but I gotta I gotta I, I gotta ask, even though we're gonna run over a little, I gotta ask a, a couple more questions about that. So so let's say, uh, but but I could use an ICO if I were a brewery, correct? It could be used for any company. Is that right or not? 
that that's our view of the world a car that it may take two years or three years or five but one day even restaurant and breweries will be will be raising fun on a tokenized basis in a very friendly way but the underlying framework um, is one that's blockchain leveraged I understood but just to say let me just play it back to you I I genuinely am not an expert in this, so I am looking to be educated here. But so my understanding, let's say a brewery uses an ICO to raise capital. What it's effectively doing is is pre-selling a a token, but that token must in some way be tied to the value of the company. Otherwise, it its fortunes are unrelated to the company. So can I think of it as effectively a share of a profit interest in that company? No, because okay. uh, think about it, it doesn't have to be. There are cases when the the coins are tied directly to the financial well-being of a company right. and potential profit. But in many cases, this is simply a license to use. Let me use another example. Okay. Let's say you and I form together and we decide to do an amusement park, right? Okay. And we are just building it from scratch. We expect to have, you know, 10,000 tickets per day. Uh, and we haven't built anything yet, which is no capacity. And we decide to say, hey, we're going to pre-sell these tickets in advance. And because we are experienced amusement park builder, we've done Disneyland before, people know that if they buy it now, the ticket is going to be cheaper, and later on there would be a lot of demand, maybe they can resell it on a secondary market. So even if you and I run a terrible company, but we build a really good amusement park, we just don't know how to run our own uh, you know, financials, the tickets, the value of those tickets would still go up if, there are a lot of, if there's a lot of demand, and it's not tied to whether our own financials at the company level uh, is good or not. Right. But it is tied in a very important way to the business because a ticket allows me to get a ride. And so in my brewery example, does the token allow me to buy beer? Because that's the analogy. There's some tie in the amusement park example between the token or between the ticket and the operations or the delivery of a service. Correct. Yes, but there comes the diff one differentiation between normal uh, traditional business model and one that is blockchain enabled. Mm -hmm. That is, once ideally, once a network has been fully mature, that is going to be self-operated and self-running, kind of like Bitcoin. Yeah, you know, in the sense that no one is managing or running it. There hasn't been a single glitch since day one, and it's been uh, eight years. So once the network is fully mature, they actually won't even need you or I to run this amusement park. It's just going to be self-run. All right. Well, Ken, I'm sticking to the U.S. dollar for a while, although I do own some Bitcoin, I will admit, just for fun. But uh, but I'm sticking with the U.S. dollar for now, and I think our listeners are super intrigued, and, and they're going to be checking it out. So I'm going to give the URL again. It's Republic dot co if you're interested in equity crowdfunding either as an investor or potentially as a way to raise up to a million dollars from ordinary citizens ken thanks so much for making the time to join me today thank you so much for having me uh, have a good evening i'm carl ulrich vice dean of entrepreneurship and innovation at wharton launchpad is produced by business radio powered by the wharton school on sirius xm channel 111 the show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud 
over on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.